Hello, and welcome to Talk To Be Well. I'm your host, Dr. Robin Henderson, Chief Executive Behavioral Health for Providence, Oregon, and Chief Clinical Officer for Work To Be Well. Here with me today to talk about racism in healthcare and the mental health implications are a couple of high school students from our National Student Advisory Council, Dominic and Mohammed. I am so delighted you could join me today. I got to do the basic, you know, informational. As a reminder, the information provided during this event is for educational purposes only. It is not intended, nor is it implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice. And let's jump in. What I'd like is for Dominic, you and, and Muhammad to introduce yourselves, where you're from, and tell us a little bit about why the topic of racism in healthcare is important to you. Dominic, why don't you kick us off? Um, hi, everyone. I am Dominic, and I am from Burbank, California. And the topic of racism in healthcare is important to me because as a person of color, it has a significant impact in my life because knowing that, you know, going and re relying on healthcare can cost me my life because of the color of my skin um, significantly, you know, negatively impacts me. And so obviously it's important to me because it impacts my life and the life of so many people I care about. Hello, my name is Mohammed Shadid. I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And the topic of uh, racism in healthcare applies to me because I'm a Muslim. Um, I'm from Arabic background. So obviously there's sometimes racism towards people um, of my race, of my religion um, in healthcare, refusing um, to be treated by others or denied the proper resources they need to because of their um, immigration status or citizenship, citizenship status at times. Well, I know we've got a lot to talk about today because racism in healthcare is real. And I think the COVID-19 epidemic has really heightened that for a lot of people. But let's let's start with, you know, can a system be inherently racist? And, and if so, how? That's a wonderful question. And sadly, the answer is yes. A system can be inherently racist. So many systems are inherently racist because they are built upon racist um, properties and racist ideals um, and racist values. And so that's what makes a system inherently racist. So while, you know, systems currently might not be operating um, solely about under the objective of racism, because they've been built upon racism and racist ideology, they can be inherently racist because they were built to do so. They were built that way. Yeah, like Dom mentioned, um, racism has been embedded in um, healthcare for years. Um, from the earliest of times, the people who could only go into healthcare were a certain group of white old men. Thankfully, we're moving away from that today, but there's still like that construct embedded in the overall system of it. And unfortunately, people um, are seeing it even if they try to get into healthcare themselves and pr uh, provide for others. And obviously, those who are trying to receive certain resources for themselves are seeing it too. Well, and, you know, when you think about why does racism persist in healthcare, I see every, you know, week or two, another research study comes out of the impact of race in healthcare. And, and I think, you know, why does racism persist in healthcare, especially nowadays when we have so much information about the impact? I mean, one of the examples that I think about is maternal, uh, maternal healthcare in women of color. And the fact that that women of color struggle to get the basics of maternal health care when we know we know this is a fact, we know this is a problem. And yet this is still a problem today. And we've known it for years. But 
when you think about racism and why it still exists in healthcare, what are some examples that come to mind for you? I mean, that's a wonderful question. And sadly, a few examples come to mind um, when discussing racism in healthcare. You know, the first example, there's, I don't remember the exact name, but I know there's a test to test your kidney function. And part of that test actually includes your race in it as like as a, as a requisite. It actually affects your test scores to the point where because if you are of a certain race, your number is at a certain level that you can't receive kidney transplants or certain, you know, you know, necessities like this simply because of your race, when in fact your race doesn't make your biology any different than any other human being. Another example that you brought up is mater maternal mortality. I mean, you know, babies of color and women of color are dying while giving birth at like significantly higher rates than white women are and white babies are. And that's that's seriously a, a problem because people are dying because of the color of their skin because when they go to help to, to seek health care, they are seen as, you know, otherworldly beings. And that's terrible. And and speaking on that, that is the reason why racism is persisting in healthcare, because people believe precedents that were set like a hundred years ago that you know, people of color have a higher pain tolerance or people of color color don't, you know, receive, feel pain at all. Or, you know, they can go under, you know, more stress on their body because they are a person of color. And a, a recent example that just came out is that, you know, in medical textbooks, all of the individuals that are shown in these medical textbooks are white. Every single one of them are. This is just, this is like a breaking story that people are starting to, you know, redo medical textbooks with people of color shown in them. And there are still medical textbooks that say that people of color have a higher pain tolerance when we know that's just not true. So this is some of the reasons why, you know, racism is persisting in healthcare because of these myths that people are still believing and because the tests and the diagnoses and everything that has has to do with healthcare is still prioritizing white people and disadvantaging people of color. Uh, unfortunately, uh, going along that, um, insurance claims, Medicare, all this stuff also plays into it. Because um, like I said, Syrian, uh, specifically I'm giving an example of Syrian refugees and other people who don't have um, citizenship status um, hospitals, they should provide care no matter what, no matter what your citizenship status is. But the insurance um, for those who aren't, the medical bills are ridiculously high, which often causes some people not to be able to get the care that they need. People are turned away if they can't pay their bills. Um, my, I have some family that works in the medical field, and they've said that even if they wanted to help people, they can't. They're like like binded to turning them away as part of their contracts or whatever, because then they're going to get fired if they try to help this person. Um out of like goodness, like they want to, but it's just impossible for them too because of all the stress on like paying the bills and making sure these medical CEOs get their billions at the end of the day. You know, you you both brought up some really great examples, and especially when you're looking at um, immigrants and, and people who um, are not citizens uh, struggling to get healthcare. Many states do not have allowances that allow non-citizens to to get healthcare. Uh, I'm in Oregon. We have the ability to do that here in Oregon, but not every state is like this. And that's one of the, the most interesting, you know, when I think about and look, especially in mental health care, if you're not a citizen and you have a mental health condition, often you can't get into some of the resources 
that you would be able to if you had Medicaid, because we know that for folks who have mental illness, Medicaid is often the insurance that that backs up, even if they've got commercial insurance that backs that up. And if you don't have citizenship, you can't get on Medicaid or Medicare. And so that really becomes a barrier to seeking the type of care that people need. But another recent um, study or conversation that I know has been going on is in the National Football League in the NFL. And the difference between compensation for white players who got concussions and players of color who got concussions. Shocking in this day and age that just now the lawsuits are coming out that are saying you can't differentiate. There is no difference based on the color of your skin. The brain looks the same regardless of the color of the skin. And that's just a shocking, a shocking myth. I know you raised a few myths that are out there. What are some other myths that you know of that that still persist today? That's a wonderful question. Another persisting myth, um, you know, that's currently affecting people of color who are interacting with the healthcare system is that somehow their, you know, their complaints of pain are less valid than those of white people. I, I mean, I've seen so many stories of people who've, you know, gone into the ER because they're in a significant amount of pain and people you know, healthcare workers are denying them care because of the color of their skin. One example is someone who had sickle cell disease, an extremely, extremely excruciating disease that does sadly affect people of color more often than people who are white. And she comes into the ER complaining of pain. And these people tell her that her pain isn't as bad as she thinks it is. And they deny her, you know, health care and they deny her, you know, support. And they're telling her how much her pain is. And so I think that that's another persisting myth that, again, you know, comes around with this pain thing is that they they have a, you know, a lower tolerance for pain or they're not even in pain at all. Or it, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable that in this day and age, we are still telling people of color what they can or can't experience when we know for a fact that no one except them can tell us what they are experiencing in the moment. I think another persisting myth is that people of color and others are seeking medications. That's why they come into the hospital. They're only seeking extra drugs or extra medications to help them feel better. Like they're over-exaggerating their pain. They're going to have to get meds. They're trying to lie to the doctors. They're not um, genuine. Their feelings aren't genuine because of what Dominic said, that these people um, have higher tolerance to pain, which obviously isn't true. Also that uh, just, yeah. No, it these are really great examples of the myths and things that have persisted that have created this historic legacy of medical racism. And I can imagine that this is a two-way street. You know, you have a racist healthcare system and I can imagine that that causes people of color to not trust the medical system. Is that true? Well, I mean, 100%. If you look at the history of how healthcare has treated people of color, if you look at the Tuskegee experiment, if you learn about who Henrietta Lacks is, if you learn and understand the atrocities committed by the father of gynecology on, slave, on enslaved women, um, you will understand that there have been so many wrongs 
perpetuated against communities of color by the healthcare system. So I, I would be shocked if people of color didn't distrust the system. If they continuously wrong you, you aren't going to trust them and you won't put your faith in them because they are showing you time and time again that they cannot be trusted and that they cannot support you in the manner that you need to be supported. So yes, people of color all around the country, all around the globe are distrusting multiple healthcare systems because they continuously wrong them. And you know what the, the side effect of, of that is? Is that they aren't receiving the healthcare that they need in the first place, both physical and mental, and their lives and the lives of their family are suffering because of that. I also think that people of color, um, their feelings are invalidated when they go to a hospital. So it's impossible to feel that they can trust a hospital, that they're actually going to give them the care that they really, really need or that they deserve. If the hospitals are just going to accuse them of lying, uh, being attention seekers, uh, wasting medical practitioners' time, there's no way that they're going to be able to trust the system, which is just inherently turned against them in making sure that they can't get proper help, proper support, proper um, avenue to increase, uh, to help their health and become better. So how's this play out with mental health? I mean, the healthcare system has always stigmatized mental health to begin with. But I can imagine that this historic distrust of the medical system has to come over into mental health. And it's not just about the cultural barriers. I think there are a lot of cultural barriers for different cultures with mental health, but there's got to be other types of impacts. And, and how do you see that? I think like for immigrants of, they, they feel like worthless almost, like they feel like they're trying so hard to become a member of this country, trying to feel supported by others. And then they're just turned away. Uh, everything's made harder for them just because they haven't achieved American citizenship yet. Even though they may be legal immigrants, but they still haven't achieved like the highest status, which is just detrimental to their health. Other people, they're gonna feel alone, that uh, they're in solitude, no one is there for them. No one cares what the, uh, they go through. No one cares what they feel, their pain. So they're going to um, all they're going to internalize all their feelings and emotions. And if they are in danger, too, if they're experiencing um, pain or abuse from other places, they're going to internalize it. And they're not going to be able to admit it and get the proper help that they need. Yes, I, I love that you brought up the point that they are going to internalize these external horrors. That is so important because people often internalize the negative external stimuli that they are, you know, undertaking that they are not undertaking, that they are dealing with in the moment. And that happens to so many individuals. And I think that, you know, part of this, the part of the impact on, you know, people's mental health is that if you are constantly, you know, used and abused by systems, you are going to stop relying on them. And because of that, this, there's this sort of, you know, this sense that you have to stand on your own two feet. And this comes to culture as well. This, I mean, this, this ties in culture as well as that, you know, cultures in communities of color have, because of the wrongs written by so many systems in our world, that cultures in communities of color, you know, tell individuals that you have to stand on your own two feet, that you have to be on your own in this situation, that you have to pull yourself up, that you have to deal with your own needs, and that you can't rely on anybody else. And so this sort of, you know, this sort of, you know, cloud of independence that you need to have this, you know, independence from anything that could possibly support you is plaguing communities of color. And they, as a result, are not relying on, you know, people to help them on systems to care for them because they have been taught that they won't be there when you need them. 
And so I think this all honestly comes down to, you know, systems of white supremacy that are teaching people of color that they aren't deserving of help and they are not deserving, they, they won't receive help if they need it. And so they have to, you know, put up this front that they have to do it on their own. And because of that, they try and then people die because of that. And that's just, I mean, that's just real. Is it important to receive healthcare from people of color? Is it important to people of color to receive healthcare from people who look like them? You know, people who have some shared level of experiences. Is that important? I think it serves as a, like a symbol of hope, progress. Um, it, it's also an inspiration to them that things are improving in the country. People are overcoming all of these uh, obstacles just because of their skin color or because of like their backgrounds, they are overcoming all these obstacles. They're proving that they are capable of doing things that um, other people won't do or aren't willing to do. So I think it just gives uh, an overwhelming like sense of hope, optimism um, to people who like look like them and want, aspire to do something similar to them. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that this, you know, this precedent of hope applies to so many communities and to so many practices. I mean, as a person of color, you know, who's used to seeing white people on the TV and the movie screen, when you see someone who looks like you, you're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, that's me right there. You see yourself in these experiences and you see yourself in historically white dominated areas and fields. And so when you see someone of color who is a doctor that you are seeing at the moment, you, you can resonate with them on a level that you can't always resonate with an individual who is white because you understand that this person knows what you are dealing with in the moment. They have similar experiences because they are a person of color. And, and I will say it right now, I believe that almost every person of color has had similar experiences and often negative experiences. And so that's why there's this sort of connection like that, you know, that transcends communication. There's just this non-spoken connection with individuals of color. And, and when you see them in fields that you don't necessarily always see people of color, you feel represented and you feel supported and, and you feel like you have a place to go to that will understand and support you and your needs. So do you think that racism in healthcare has impacted the response in some communities to COVID-19? vaccine hesitancy, perhaps. Um, how's that impact? How's that gone? What do you see? Totally. And I'm so glad that you brought this up. Um, because, I mean, you just look at the statistics, you know, people who are of color are more likely to catch COVID and they're more likely to die of COVID. And, and that's just, I mean, that's honestly so unbelievably terrible that people who are of color because of the color of their skin, they are more likely to die from serious illness and they are more likely to die or catch a serious illness. And you just look at the statistics. Yes, it really is impacting people of color and communities of color. And onto the vaccine hesitancy. I mean, you know that recently there's been hesitancy because there's rumors and there's myths, but something that is so just under overlooked is the fact that people of color are not you know, receiving this life-saving treatment because they distrust the system it's tied to. And that's valid. And that is 100% valid. And that's why, you know, I try to be 
more open-minded with vaccine hesitancy among communities of color because they because they haven't had experiences that benefit them when they experience you know experiences within the healthcare system and you know celebrities are speaking about this and how as a person of color it's it's harder to accept support and guidance and resources from a system that's just constantly disenfranchise them and so i think that this is a really important topic because people are dying because of they have because of the color of their skin they are catching a se severe illness because of the color of their skin and they are also re refusing support because the experiences that they have experienced simply because of the color of their skin. That's terrible. And I don't think we should ever accept a world where that happens. I think Dom summed it up beautifully. I'd also like to add how, like at the beginning when vaccines were first distributed, communities of color, they did not get the most supply. The like supply went to other places first. They had very limited um, supply, which caused more, even more people to die. Even more people had the chance to get better, which caused them to lose their lives early in this pandemic. Now there's more availability, but then there's still that distrust. Like, why is this system, why should I be able to trust the system now when in the past they've just uh, dis, um, stomped on me all the time, destroyed me, degraded me, uh, the health of my community. And yeah. Yeah, and, and Mohammed, I just, I have to add to that because you make such a good point and that can be expanded. You know, communities of color within our country are not the only ones who are not receiving vaccines at the steady rate that communities of, of white people are. There are entire countries in Africa and in Asia who are not receiving supplies of vaccines because countries of predominantly white individuals in Western countries are buying up all of the supplies. And this is a significant issue that is affecting people's lives and killing people because countries with predominantly people of color who have less wealth than you know western countries are not able to receive vaccines we currently live in a world where the country that you live in can literally predispose you to dying because you don't have a supply for you don't have a supply of vaccines and so i just i sorry i had to add that because that is such a prevailing issue and and it just shows you how racism persists in our healthcare so what do we do about it? I mean, how do we begin to turn the tide? Even let's say you've got somebody who you know needs healthcare, whether they're a friend or a family member, and they're hesitant to get healthcare, get mental health help, whatever whatever the case may be. What do you say? I think you first have to show how um, healthcare has progressed, how there are more people of color there, how there are more immigrants in the field working it. Uh, I think also that the healthcare itself, the field itself, has to apologize for what it has done in the past and explain what it's doing to get better relating to these issues so that more people feel comfortable utilizing these services, which should, which everyone should be and should be getting better from, not getting uh, worse from. And I think that uh, there just needs to be a greater sense of trust. So these healthcare um, systems have to prove that they are willing, that they can gain the trust back of these people and keep it, that they have to keep committing actions which prove that they are dedicated to the cause of helping everyone, regardless of your skin color, regardless of your background. Yes, all of that times 10. That is perfect. And and I love that you have, you know, taken, you know, the steps that we can address with individuals and communities of color. But I want to take a crack at the system. How can we fix the system that is continuously wronged individuals? And one way is to undo the training that has you know allowed racism to persist we need to target every single medical book medical textbook that says in it 
that individuals of color have a higher pain tolerance. We need to include curriculum within med school, within med school and within training for to become a doctor about racial sensitivity. We need to have curriculum that is adapted to allow individuals who want to become part of the medical field to understand their impact on communities of color and to help prevent negative you know outcomes when it comes to people of color and we need to do we need to you know implement research strategies and policies that help you know reduce black maternal mortality rate we need to take a systemic approach to solve a systemic issue and that and that's just the bare minimum is that's and that's where we need to start is by addressing the system and then addressing the concerns of communities and individuals i know one of the conversations that i've heard in many legislatures um and had conversations with many legislators is that there are often not the opportunities for BIPOC individuals in particular to be able to go to medical school, to go to, you know, in, in the mental health field, it's very, very apparent in the mental health field um, because mental health education is not subsidized in the way that medical school education is subsidized. So when somebody gets their mental health degree, uh, especially at the master's level, they often have to work for free. And that takes a, a level of privilege to be able to work for free for a period of time in order to be able to obtain your license. That has not been something many BIPOC individuals have been willing to do and, and have been able to do. I mean, not willing, able. Uh, so when you talk about racism in the educational system, I think you're absolutely right. And it goes beyond the textbooks and the lectures and those types of things, it goes to how we pay for education uh, is such a privileged system. But that's part of the solution is figuring out how we then diversify that workforce and take down the barriers so that people can become mental health workers, so people can become doctors and physicians, assistants and nurses and all those other types of things. Um, I also see, though, that your generation, I think, has a different perspective in how we approach this issue. Um, you're much more likely to talk about it. You're much more likely to talk about it even when it makes other people uncomfortable. And I think that's part of how you combat uh, systemic racism. And I'm wondering here as we begin to wrap up, what thoughts do you have going forward to your generation of, of people for how to do this differently? And, and especially, in, and Muhammad, I meant to circle back around and ask you, I know there's not just the issues that you deal with as a BIPOC individual, but also as a Muslim. Where do you see racism in healthcare specifically to Muslim individuals? Uh, I think most prominently it's uh, just like when people recognize that they're you're a Muslim, they kind of like look down on you. They're wary, scared a little bit, almost um, wary to give you medications, thinking that you're also striving for more uh, meds. Uh, you're not to be trusted. You don't know what you're going to do later. But I think in to in order to combat it, our community has to keep speaking out, keep um, dis disproving these stereotypes, keep overcoming these obstacles. Never be quiet. Never uh, be silent about any of these things that are happening. Something wrong happens, you have to speak out to the entire world about what this happens so that these healthcare systems realize, uh, get scared and that they uh, fix their actions and mend their actions in order to better their services and reach a broader array of people all across the country and across the world too. 
I totally agree. You know, as a person of color and as a member of the LGBTQ plus community, there are so many barriers to receiving proper health care. Like, you know, in certain areas, I can't give blood because there's the worry I might have AIDS, even though I obviously don't have AIDS. And there is also worries about, you know, the color of my skin and, you know, how that's going to affect, you know, the health care that I receive. And so I think what Mohammed, what Mohammed said was perfect is we have to continue to apply pressure on our systems of governance and on our systems of healthcare because this is a significant issue and there, nothing will happen unless we continue to apply pressure. That has been true for every social justice movement throughout our entire history. They have applied pressure on our systems and because of that, our systems were forced to change. So we have to continue to, to demand better for ourselves and for our communities. And we have to continue to demand that significant change is implemented immediately. Well, Dominic and Mohammed, thank you for joining me on Talk To Be Well to talk about something that not a lot of people want to talk about. Uh, and a lot of people just want to pretend that this isn't an issue and yada, yada, yada. And here's what we know. Racism in healthcare exists. It's a real thing. And those of us who work in healthcare have a responsibility to, to fix it. And like you said so eloquently, Muhammad, you, you have an obligation to keep speaking. And Muhammad and Dominic, I really want to encourage you to keep speaking, to keep making people uncomfortable and to talk about the things that people don't want to talk about because we need to hear it. I also want to make sure folks know that if you're looking for help, if you're looking for health care, if you're looking for resources, you can visit us at providence.org. You can go to our website at worktobewell.org. We've got a lot of BIPOC resources there. We have some curriculum on structural racism and intergenerational trauma. And you can learn more about how racism affects not only healthcare, but mental health and the mental health of, of everyone around us. Thank you again for joining me. I'm your host, Dr. Robin Henderson. This is Talk To Be Well, and please be well.